I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There was many rejection letters, not many, but there was three or four that said, this will win a major award, this will win the booker. And that's why I talk about rejection, because I think sometimes we think rejection is about the quality of the work, but sometimes it's about the fit. Hi, welcome to Write Off, a podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. Writing rejection has been a subject close to my heart ever since I didn't manage to sell my own first novel last year, and if you're interested you can hear a little bit more about that in the trailer or the first episode of this series. I mentioned last week that this was meant to be a 10-part miniseries, but we will now have a bonus episode next week. And I'm delighted to tell you that the guest on that bonus episode will be Meg Mason, the writer of this year's summer hit, Sorrow and Bliss. This incredible book, one of my favourites of the year, if not many years, is in fact a novel born of rejection. And I look forward to sharing with you the interview with Meg next week. So, on to this week's guest. What a year the Booker Prize winning author Douglas Stewart has had. Born on a housing estate in Glasgow, Douglas and his siblings were raised by a single mum who died of alcoholism when he was 16. In his 30s, by this time working in fashion in New York, Douglas started writing a book about a little boy similar to him, Shaggy Bain, a kind, resilient, gay child struggling to fit into his working-class Thatcherite community and trying to take care of his gregarious, well-meaning alcoholic mother. Ten years later, the novel finally finished. It was rejected first by agents, then by 32 editors in the US alone. Some of them even told Douglas's agent the book was likely to win a prize like the Booker, but that they didn't know quite how to sell it and therefore couldn't take it on. Then, of course, last year at the age of 44, Douglas did win the £50,000 Booker Prize, the second Scott ever to do so. Judges said it was destined to be a classic. It's a remarkable reminder of how even the most accomplished books still have to find the right desk at the right time. I actually found myself just as interested in how Douglas managed to maintain focus on the same project for a decade. 
The answer is he didn't really. And I also found it very moving hearing how someone given so few advantages in life still learned not just to persevere in the way Douglas did, but to do so with such compassion and grace. As you'll hear, Douglas comes across not just as a dedicated and very talented author, but an incredibly nice man. So here's Douglas. Shuggy says himself, and I suppose to some degree he's a proxy for your own experience, he says something inside him felt put together incorrectly. I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up like that, you know, feeling unwelcome in your own community, in your own life. Yeah, I mean, that's a a really big question. It's a good place to start. Um, I think it was just a time of uh, a very narrow expression of masculinity to be growing up in the 70s and 80s in any, I think, working class industrial town. I don't think it's specific necessarily to Glasgow. I think what the publication of Shuggy has taught me is actually it's quite a universal experience for the time. But it was very clear that my own sort of masculinity was so outside the expected norm. And I wasn't especially flamboyant or precocious. I was just a very feminine soul. And the thing or the the toxic power of homophobia at the time was, first of all, society totally allowed it and accepted it. And it was reinforced at every level of society. There was no safe harbor for me to turn to where someone would say to me, you know, you're fine. Everything will be okay. There will be a bright future for you because nobody knew that would be the way. Mm. Um, And so it was reinforced at every sort of level of society from kids to their parents to even sometimes the people who love me the most. Um, Mm sort of tried to encourage me to change a little bit, to be, you know, to be interested in the things that boys should be interested in. So the line where Shuggy says he felt put uh, together incorrectly is really drawn from my own life because I spent so much of my youth trying to change myself, to alter myself. I f- figured if I could uh, adopt a passion for football, maybe I would feel a little bit more like the other boys. If I could, you know, have an interest in girls, if I would stop liking feminine things, whether that was dolls or skipping rope or whatever it was that interested me as a young boy. And I did tons of things about, you know, and I think lots of queer people do. You know, we try to change how we carry ourselves in a room. Sometimes we lower our voices to appear more masculine. There was, there's lots of sort of tricks and things to, to really to protect yourself, most of all, uh, mm. from bullying or from violence. And, and so it was that. And the rejection there, Francesca, came really early for me. You know, as a kid, when I'm about six or seven, before you even have any concept of who you are as a soul, children at that age are just these little wonderful souls and they don't know about themselves or their desires or or identities or the notion of that and it was everyone else the other boys that sort of turned to me and said what's wrong with you you know what's uh, what's different about you and so the rejection came when I was about six years old I think. As an adult looking back on that how how do you feel about that little boy who felt rejected because even putting the book um, and its success aside you do not seem like someone who feels rejected now. You seem very uh, self-confident, not, you know, not to the point of arrogance or anything, but you seem very, very happy and comfortable in your life. I wonder how that, how that evolved. It took an awfully long time. And, and thank you for saying that, but I'm not sure I do feel fully confident in my life yet. Um, but I think a lot of young queer people have to start this journey in adulthood to, first of all, get to know their true selves. Uh, who we are and what we like, you know, who we will be when people aren't watching us or when they aren't judging us or when they aren't expecting something else from us. 
And that really began for me about 18 or 19. And it took all the way up through my 20s and 30s to discover myself and just to be comfortable in a room where I felt, you know, I am enough as I am. I am all the man I'm ever going to be. And that is enough. And, and so it was a very long personal journey for me. When I look at kids like Shuggy, and Shuggy isn't a singular kid. I mean, there's so many kids at the time who would be going through a very similar thing. And, and actually, even still today, you know, we keep thinking about the progress of queer rights as a thing that's lifted all boats, and it's done so much. Uh, but it isn't, there are still people who will be left behind that might be living sort of in poverty or with limited mobility or in a community that doesn't accept them. And I even see that here in New York, Francesca, you know, one of the charities I'm very proud to support supports teenage boys and girls who are thrown out of the house when they come out to their parents. And here we are in New York in 2021. So it's still happening. That rejection is still happening. Yes. But for me, it's an ongoing journey. It's so interesting. And I mean, it's not just um, for Shuggy and presumably um, for yourself in your own experience of growing up in that world. It's not just about homophobia. I mean, there's lots about the world that you describe and build there where everyone experiences a form of rejection. I mean, Agnes certainly does. And, and lots of your characters do. I mean, poverty and the patriarchy are are not good to anyone. And I suppose a lot of what you describe is what we would now call toxic masculinity, although you know that that's not what they would have called it then. I mean, no one in this world is, is very welcome. Everyone is sort of rejected in some form. Yeah, and actually I, I, I'm not a big fan of the term toxic masculinity because I think it puts all the problems in society at uh, heterosexual men's feet. And I think we all play a part in some way. But it is true, you know, I do deal with misogyny and homophobia in the book, but part of the reason why Shuggy Bain took me 10 years to write, I actually could have published it two years in, but it would have been a remarkably different book. What I had wanted to sort of achieve with it was to understand people, even when they did very ugly or bad things, like what brought them to that point? Because I don't believe people are inherently bad. I think they're always reacting to the situation or the circumstances that they're in. And so the 10 years for me was a little bit of a lesson in empathy for myself to look at some of the things that were quite traumatic in my childhood and, um, you know, whether that was sort of things that were brought around by addiction or by how sort of men made me feel or, you know, the way I saw my single mother suffer. And to look at those things and sort of separate the trauma from them and understand what were the root causes that got people to that place. And I tried to really imbue each of the characters with that sort of backstory before they even reached the page so that they could be as round as possible. But it was a time of incredibly narrow society across all of Britain, I think. And I think as you sort of find yourself in poverty or slightly more towards the benefits class, then there's a limit to mobility there. So there's a limit of other experiences that you're allowed to go out and see and life you're allowed to interact with. Because really my entire childhood was the four or six streets that I grew up on. And when you live in that experience, then everything that those streets say about you become your truth. You know, what your neighbors think about you, the perception of you. And if it doesn't go your way, if the solidarity isn't there in support of you, then you're just incredibly isolated by it. I mean, that's certainly the case for the, the book has a lot of warmth towards Agnes, which I think is one of the primary reasons it's it's done so well um, that, that there's a residual relationship there between the mother and son, despite how she behaves. But I would go so far as to say that that also extends to Shug, who is who, Shuggy's father, who is in a way the worst person in the book. But he 
he's not wholly condemned either, is he? I mean, he he's it's very clear that he's had a tough time too. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't my job as an author to condemn anybody in the book or to or to celebrate them. It was my job to tell you their story and to allow to introduce them to you, really. Mm. But in particular with the the character of Agnes, you know, she is a work of fiction. She is not my mother. I am not Shaggy. Uh, I can't say that enough. But I had known from loving my own mother through her addiction. My mother suffered with alcoholism from my first memories of her up until she died when I was in high school one day. And I had known really quickly how flattened she became in society and the perception of her and how when she was fallible as a woman, as a mother, people discarded her really quickly. And there was a reductive thing in that where, you know, my mother was just known as an alcoholic. She was an alcoholic. And I always thought, no, there's a wonderful woman here. There's a woman of many, many facets. Uh, not all of them great, but, you know, she was generous, she was funny, she was gregarious, she was so kind, uh, smart and determined, but she was also very hurt and she was, you know, carrying a very sort of, a very many deep wounds inside herself, I believe, and yet people just didn't see it. She was sort of given her label in society and she was reduced by it, and so part of the motivation for writing Shaggy Bane was to show that, you know, people, even when they're suffering, are absolutely full people and complex people. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do. It's such a wonderful portrayal of, of that character. What do you think your mother would make of would make of it? <laughs> well, you know, I'm all, it's often said I'm writing from the margins or I'm giving a voice to voiceless people. And I don't think that's actually true at all, Francesca, because my mother had, and women like my mother, had these really loud, booming voices. The problem was is society didn't like to listen to them. And so I think my mother would be absolutely thrilled to see some of her struggles and some of the things that she went through be celebrated in art. I think she would feel finally that, that people could hear her. That's so wonderful. Moving on to the writing of the book itself a little bit. So it took you 10 years to write, Shuggy, which you began in mm. your 30s, I believe. Mm. When you were writing it, because it does touch on so many personal topics. Did you feel like that unwelcome little boy again that we discussed yeah. earlier? Yeah, I absolutely did. You know, I'm a product of the British social class and I'm a product of Thatcher's Britain. And I grew up in a community where my brothers and the men around me were 26% unemployment and, and it stayed there. And so as a kid, I came to books far too late, but I would love to have been a writer as a kid. And it was just seen as something like boys like me don't do. And so instead, I am, um, and it was a, turned out to be a great decision for me. It brought me to New York. It did lots of wonderful things in my life, but I was turned towards textiles, being an incredibly uh, pragmatic and practical Scottish trade. But I'm working in fashion. I'm working in textiles for you know 15 years before I sit down to return to my writing. And when I began writing Shaggy Bane, you know, I had such an inferiority complex that I wouldn't even allow myself to admit it would be a book. Because who am I to write a book? It's far too daunting. I didn't travel in circles of writers. I didn't do an MFA. And so instead, all I really did was I sat down and I wrote. And that was all I would commit to. Just I'm going to write these scenes. I'm going to create this world. And, and not only Shaggy Bane, but I wrote many short stories. I actually began to work on my second novel also, which hopefully will be published next year. But I just wrote, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And for 10 years, I didn't tell anyone I was doing it other than my husband, because I did feel like people might judge me for it. And I still carried that chip within myself, you know. Um, I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my best friends. Um, wow. Because I also felt, yeah, I also felt like I had to 
prove a lot to myself first before I could ask someone to have faith in me. And so I kept it incredibly private. But there was also a joy in the, in the privacy there. I became incredibly protective of my writing. Because although I was engaged in a very creative career, I worked in fashion design. Fashion's an incredibly fast-paced and collaborative thing. You never really get to sit with your own creativity very long, Francesca, because people are always ripping it off you and wanting to make the garment and put it in the store and move on to the next thing. And so it's an incredibly fast-paced, demanding environment. And so for me, my writing was this such a calm oasis uh, and such a place for me really to be by myself and with my own thoughts that I grew quite protective of it. Did you like what you were writing from the moment you began? By which I don't mean, did you like everything you wrote always, but did you feel a sense of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually okay at, uh, okay at doing this? No, I didn't. And at first I was being a really bad copy of all the writers that I admire. Uh, and it took me a long time to find my own particular point of view and my own voice. And I actually found that that started to come about when I, instead of denying the history that I had accumulated all these years in the visual arts, observing the world, paying attention to the closest details, instead of sort of trying to leave that aside and become what I, my idea of what a writer was, when I embraced that and I brought that to the page is when I suddenly felt, oh, okay, like I can do this and this is how I do it. This is how only I do it. And so it was about more about playing to my strengths rather than trying to shore up my weaknesses. When I, when I understood that, then it started to really hum. And writing for me, nothing makes the day clip by faster than when I can sit in front of a blank page. And I was surprised by that, to be honest, because I already had this wonderful creative career. And yet that wasn't holding my full attention and nothing would uh, other than writing. Who were the writers that you admired who you were accidentally on purpose emulating? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so many. I think Toni Morrison has to be put up there and Agnes Owens, uh, certainly James Kelman, uh, Thomas Hardy. Uh, I'm a huge Thomas Hardy fan. Uh, and also Cormac McCarthy. I mean, you know, I love Cormac McCarthy's sense of his epic proportions and how he takes a sort of very panoramic view of landscapes. And, and you know, I was I was sort of emulating all of them and trying to think of the tenderness of Toni Morrison and Agnes Owens and against the industrial landscape of James Kelman. And, and it was, uh, you know, it took a while to find my own groove. And I know you wrote, I mean, it took you 10 years, uh, although that wasn't 10 years where you were just doing that. So I suppose it's not as long in a sense, but you've mm. described writing many drafts and rewriting sentences again and again and, and um, I mean do you have an idea of how many drafts it was in the end I know I know the sort of there was a time when it was a kind of 900 page book or something wasn't it <laughs> yeah the first draft because I didn't I didn't put any discipline on myself and so I just wrote what I felt the first draft actually was 900 pages single space though Francesca so it would have been an 1800 page book or manuscript wow. that I submitted. <laughs> it was monstrous. It was really, it was housed in two huge legal binders. And then even on that first draft, I had pages that I'd inserted that had written all this other backstory and things. But that's okay, I think, for a first draft, because you should let the story take you where it will. And, and I was glad I did that. But a lot of the subsequent drafts were about editing and, and really focusing back to the heart of the story and keeping the lens on the protagonist, but I lost count of how many drafts I worked on. I would say probably over 15, maybe over 20. But the book from the, when it became a book at the first draft, uh, never really changed the arc of its story. What happened to it was a little strange in that it distilled 
in that I brought more discipline to what I was telling the reader. And also everything just became tighter over subsequent drafts. But we, we meet Shuggy in the same way that we meet him in the, the book that's published today. And we leave him in the same way that we leave him in the book. I mean, not having done an MFA and not discussing it with other writers, as you've described, was it not an overwhelming process taking this, you know, this sort of monstrous manuscript and and finessing it without assistance from someone who knew or just having to go with your gut? I mean, how did you know what to do? There were several times where I was just so overwhelmed by it that I couldn't touch it for months. Um, And I realised that I just had to step back and step away or else I would do some harm to the manuscript. Um, and that was okay. I, I think sometimes writers do some of their best writings when they're not at the desk, when you're just step back and you think and you reflect. Um, and so we have to allow ourselves that time. But I'm incredibly fortunate that my husband's a very well-read man. And so he read one of the first drafts. He read the first draft. And <laughs> it do was such a long what he draft. Thought? Yeah, yeah, I do. Actually, um, he was blown away. And there's two parts to this story. But the first part is, is he was blown away because we've been together for 24 years and uh, he's been, he comes home two or three times a year to Glasgow. He knows my family. He knows the streets I grew up in. I obviously told him how I grew up and what it was like, but until he actually read a book, a fictionalized account of that, he couldn't quite put, you know, he couldn't put his feet in my shoes. He couldn't understand really what it was like. And I think that's the power of literature to really allow the reader to step into a world rather than me just telling you fragments of it, you know, to really create that around him. And so, first of all, he was blown away that I'd written this book, but then um, it really deepened our understanding of each other as humans, which was incredibly powerful. Um, I think it was the first time he fully, fully saw me, which is remarkable. He's, he's American, you know, so he doesn't really understand Thatcher's Britain other than what I tell him. But, you know, he goes through and he tries to sort of give me comments on the book. He's a very, he's a modern art curator. He's a very well-read man. But he starts on the first, you know, 100, 200 pages, giving very thoughtful comments. And then he just gives up because he gets exhausted and he starts just redacting things and writing, do better, stop it. <laughs> you know, just these, these things that are not really, that they are helpful, but they're not very uh, descriptive. <laughs> Were you nervous to show it to him? I mean, partly, I guess, because it's, you know, a little bit your life, as, as you've said, but, but also just because, I mean, you, you've mentioned you haven't really shown your work to people. So... You know, were you, were you worried that he might turn around and presumably in a polite way, but either way say, you know, no, no, Douglas, this is no good. Yeah, stop it. Um, <laughs> I, I absolutely was. I think everybody is when you share something that's so personal. Um, but I felt very, you know, I felt in a very supportive relationship. And so if I was going to show it to anyone, he would be the person to show it to. But I definitely hovered around him as he was reading it and wouldn't leave him alone. And so, you know, was dying for the feedback. <laughs> so you finished it and at some point decided to get an agent. How did you decide it was finished and how did you go about getting an agent and, and what was that process like for you? You know, I think I'm a writer that sort of always refuses to be done. I could keep editing forever and keep working on something. Um, and so part of it was the 10 years was because I had such a joy with the world and the characters. But at some point that starts to twist and I can't quite move on to my next thing that I'm writing and concentrate on other worlds unless I actually call a halt, like put a full stop at the end of the book. And so I, you know, I did what all writers do. I queried some agents with my manuscript. Uh, I was really fortunate that I met someone who was within publishing in New York. 
at a Christmas party. She's a wonderful, she actually went on to become an agent herself, but she's called Tina Pullman. And, you know, I did that. I didn't know her. We were at a party. She said, I said, what do you do? And she says, I work in publishing. And she said, what do you do? And I said, I work in fashion. And I said, but I've written a book. And if you ever want to like, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, look like someone wants to stop talking to you forever, just tell someone in publishing that you've written a book. Because <laughs> the fear that crossed this poor person's face was, I, I could see it telegraphed miles away. But Tina read the book, um, which was incredibly generous of her. And I was expecting just notes on it so that I could keep applying myself to my art. And she said, wow, this is a finished book. And she was stunned. And so just her vote of confidence gave me the confidence to then begin the query process. And so I sent it out to agents whose work I really deeply admired um, and I thought would have a sympathy with Shuggy. And it was rejected really quickly. I sent it to five agents and it was rejected by four um, really quickly. But I was fortunate that the agent that I wanted was the one who said yes. <laughs> that is fortunate. And did, he, fortunate. did you work on it with him before it got sent out to editors? Yeah, yeah, actually, my agent is a she. Her name is Anna Stein, and she is with ICM. She yes. represents yeah. uh, part of the reason why I applied or I submitted to Anna was because she represents Hanya Yanagihara, and I was a fan of A Little Life, and also Ben Lerner and Garth Greenwell, and I, I sort of thought she would she would be able to relate to the book. But Anna read it, um, and she gave me some notes on it. Most of them were just very simple editing notes, but. Towards the end of the book, she um, said to me, I don't know that I believe the character's motivation at the denouement in the book. And that was, she said, it's totally fine. And if that's what it is, but Shuggy seems like he's sort of unraveling a little bit. And I thought, no, he's not unraveling at all. He's sad, but he's not unraveling. And so from there, I was able to go and make some changes. And that was the manuscript you've got today. And so after that, you sent it out, well, she sent it out to publishers. And now this is something that you've mentioned in several interviews. And in fact, Anna has mentioned in, in since then that um, I think initially she said it had had 20 rejections to you. And then, and then you later found out, um, I think via the media, perhaps, that it was 32. <laughs> and that's in America. And I know you've mentioned that actually because of that, you didn't really know at the time what was going on. But I wonder if you could just walk me through a little bit the process of submission, because even if you hadn't even if you hadn't requested feedback as it came in, presumably, mm. you know, you were sitting on your hands for a while thinking, what's going on? Why haven't I heard about my mega deal yet? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was such a, um, a time of highs and lows. You know, I was incredibly excited about this book. I'd been working on it for 10 years. Anna was excited about it. And so she sent it out for submission here in New York. And I think because Anna's quite a prominent agent, she people read it very quickly. It didn't linger on desks. But she asked me before she submitted it, she said, do you want to know when it gets rejected? You know, it's a personal choice for writers. And I thought, yeah, I would love to know. You know, I'll, I'll learn and I'll get strong from this and there'll be some kind of learnings. And actually, I think that's a mistake. Um, and I don't think I will ever do that again. Because as when you get rejected as a writer, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you know, your manuscript is what it is, the book is what it is. And, and so every day it can be like a lot of little punches or a lot of little sort of digs to your ego. But very quickly, it was rejected 20 times here in America. And I thought 20 was the number, but Anna just stopped telling me because she saw how demoralizing it was for me. Um, So she did tell you up to the 20 Mm -hmm. that they were happening, but she didn't give you feedback on what they were saying. No, no, she gave me feedback on all of it. Oh, Um, she did. But she stopped telling me after 20 because I think she saw how demoralized I was getting. And what Um, sort of feedback were they giving? Do you remember? 
Well, that's the remarkable thing about it. It was, it was very varied. You know, the people that I can, the feedback that's very understandable are the editors that say, you know, this is not a book for me. I liked it, but I don't want to publish it. And it was very cut and dry in that way. There was an awful lot of feedback that said, oh my God, this is the most remarkable book. This is the most wonderful book. I don't know how to publish it. I don't know how to market it or to connect that to readers. And those were hard rejections for me because first of all, they liked the book and they felt very strongly about it, but they, you know, they just didn't know how to connect this working class Scottish family with an American audience. And it was only in hindsight much later that I came to really uh, admire and respect that response because I think if an editor or a publisher cannot do the best uh, job for your, for your novel, then they should bow out. They should say, no, thanks. I don't think I can do a great job with this. You know, there was, there was actually, funnily enough, there was many rejection letters, not many, but there was three or four that said, this will win a major award. This will win the Booker. And, but we're wow. not. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a remarkable thing about it. That's why I talk about rejection, because I think sometimes we think rejection is about the quality of the work, but sometimes it's about the fit. It's about what a publisher thinks they can do with your book and can they connect it? And, and they just didn't know how to do it. It's hard to launch a debut novelist any day of the week, Francesca. Um, there are so many books published and how do you cut through that noise? And when you're writing about another time and another place that maybe American audiences aren't super familiar with, that makes it incredibly difficult for a publisher. So I have a lot of sympathy for that. Yes, but I think it is. I think, I mean, a def very different situation from you, but when I had my experience of my book being out on submission, I did find the positive feedback almost harder to take because when you go into this sort of process, I think most people don't know an awful lot about the market mm. and they tend to think of it as a creative endeavor, not a market oriented endeavor. But you know, the job of agents and editors is to incorporate the market into that process. And, and when you feel, you know, that someone thinks the book is good, but they, they can't do what they or you would like with it. That is, that is tough to take. Um, yeah, it, yeah, and I found, you're absolutely right. I found the more positive the rejection was, the harder it was. I like the ones that just said, I didn't like this book. And <laughs> I could take that on the chin. That's yeah. fair, that's the subjectivity of art. So you but, got up to 20 and then Anna just stopped telling you. And, and, and so that wasn't a long time period, but what, what happened then? Well, actually, after about 20, there were a few that were very positive, and from that emerged uh, Grove Atlantic in, uh, in New York. And I went in to have a meeting with a really incredible young editor, uh, Peter Blackstock, who was just visibly thrilled about this book. He was sort of vibrating. And after these three, four weeks of rejections, I was sort of overwhelmed by how enthusiastic he was. And he didn't know how to market the book. He didn't know how to connect it to readers. And he was very transparent about that. But he said, all I want to do is publish this book. And I knew in that moment that Shuggy was home because I knew that someone felt as passionate about my work as I did and as Anna did. And so I knew that no matter what came after that, that I'd found the person who, who I would feel safest with Shuggy with. And, and that was really, you know, the only offer actually Shuggy got in the United States. And that's oh, wonderful. Problem. After, after mm. all that, had you got to the stage where you worried that it might not sell at all? I think because it happened so fast, I hadn't quite gotten there. I was still reeling from the fact that, you know, that I was coming so close so many times and people were, you know, people would write back and say, I can't stop thinking about this book and that kind of thing, but still wouldn't publish it. And so I was still dealing with that feeling. Um, I hadn't quite gotten to the point of, that. oh, this might never be published. Okay. And 
the rejections that were less positive, because it is quite a personal book, um, mm. did, it, did the rejections feel personal? I mean, rejection always feels a little bit personal, I think, but did it feel, you know, well, if we don't like Shuggy, you know, we don't like Douglas? Or- I think it ha- it does subconsciously because the book is so personal. Um, and so you take that, You I took that, whether they said it or not. Um, I was also very aware of how hard Scottish literature can be outside of the UK sometimes. And and I think a lot of what they were saying was tinged with that. How can we sort of introduce a Glaswegian voice to the broader world? But one of the things that really struck with me is that you, you have to remember, I came from an incredibly commercial end of the creative arts. Fashion is about the application of creativity to create things very quickly for you. Mm-hmm. And so I was incredibly naive where I thought literature was just about publishing the very best books that were and you said something very astute earlier when you're talking about, you know, it is a business and people are looking at how they can publish these books, but also make a profit. And I just was unprepared for that. I thought I was aware that I believed that Shaggy was a very strong book. And so I thought that people would would see that strength and, and be able to make things happen for it. So then you got your deal mm. and um, and then you moved on to international deals. What happened? What happened next? Because I know it. Well, it faced a little bit of rejection elsewhere as well, didn't it? Um, was it? Did she come to the UK next or? She did, yeah. And so uh, this is probably about September 2018 and we I signed a deal with Grove Atlantic and then it, they start to submit it in the United Kingdom, which is unusual for a Scottish book. You know, Shuggy is a profoundly British book, but just I live in New York and so that's how my life is organised. And it was rejected. She, by this point, she's just not telling me about rejections, but it's rejected, I think, 14 times in the United Kingdom very quickly and rejected in Scotland. So I couldn't even hang my hat on the... With, with a Scottish publisher? Mm, I think with a few. Yeah, wow. it was. And I think that's important to say because I think mm. I had had the perception that it was because I was a Scottish voice in the world and it was rejected in Scotland. And and it was rejected really quickly, but it received two really strong offers at the same time. So it happened much, much quicker at home. And um, and I just knew because I was such a fan, as I said earlier, of Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life. When her editor offered uh, on Shaggy Bane, I, I kind of felt like he was home. Mm. What did the Scottish publisher reject on the basis of? Do you remember? You know, I haven't read the rejection letter in a while, so I wouldn't want to speculate on it. Um, but you know it was it's interesting because in another way probably Scottish publishers are inundated with Scottish voices and so maybe (laughs) they didn't see maybe they didn't see Shuggy as being remarkable amongst that or maybe it was because I was telling them about Thatcher's Glasgow and they were like yeah we understand we we got it (laughs) so maybe they didn't see the specialness I don't I don't know I would have to reread that but but yeah that's so interesting so given all that I mean how did it feel when you won the booker you seem very gracious about the whole experience and and not very well I knew all along how how brilliant it was and uh haha to the ones that rejected it but it must have felt it must have felt very validating actually you know I never felt that at all um I never felt that it's been such a even up until winning the Booker Francesca it was a weird year for my book I published my debut novel right into the maw of the pandemic. And so after all this 12 years of excitement, I publish, I think, two weeks before the world shuts down. And as you will know, books um, are published every week. And you have that window to sort of shine and hopefully it catches fire then. But if not, there's more coming. 
And so I actually started to grieve for Shuggy because my entire tour was wiped off. The world hadn't figured out how to move to a, a digital space yet. And I had to really sort of lower my expectations for the book. And it was only really when Shuggy was long listed two things. First of all, the UK publication, which came in the August of last year. And also when Shuggy was long listed for the booker. And then you start to see the book become a little bit of a revenant. You know, it's sort of, it comes from real obscurity to sort of picking itself up. And so through the journey when I won the Booker, I was just so stunned about it, but I'd already been through such a tumultuous year where the only way you could cope was just relinquishing control and expectations. Um, because if you thought something was going to happen, well, by the way, here's a pandemic and every bookstore's closed. And, uh, you know, so I just had to let go. Mm. I mean, it's interesting about control. I think that is probably one of the hardest things about rejection in publishing, because one of the things that is so wonderful about writing is that it is, broadly speaking, autonomous in the, initially, anyway, um, autonomous and quiet. And then suddenly, you know, the marketplace is, is sort of um, teamwork and, and readers and, and buying and selling and, and noise. And, and you're lucky if you get the noise, but it, it is, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very different. It's all about relinquishing control after, after submission, isn't it? It really is. And, and so much of it is about timing and about luck and, and things that a writer just doesn't have have control over even success you know Shuggy winning the booker was really uh, beyond my wildest dreams but he was also uh, shortlisted for I think about eight other awards and he didn't win them um, and so you almost have to just also take that as it comes you have to write through awards you have to write through publication you have to you have to keep going with your work because um, you just have, you really have no control. And, and by the way, rejection is part of a writer's life. Even post Booker, Shuggy was rejected by international publishers. There were people who didn't want to publish it. And the Booker doesn't necessarily, it changes an awful lot of things, but it doesn't change everything for a writer. Um, it's still a very subjective art field. Do you feel like you are definitely a good writer now? <laughs> uh, I might need to go see my therapist before I answer that. I don't think I'll ever feel like I'm definitely a good writer. And I think writers should always be their own worst critics because when you do put a book into the world, everyone else will have an opinion on it. Um, and so I think, first of all, you have to be hard on yourself and hard on your work. And design actually taught me that. Design is all about uh, asking what's wrong with something, continuously prototyping, uh, refining and advancing. And so that was another thing that really helped me when I came to writing. Shaggy Bain is, is in some ways a very hopeful book. You know, it, it's filled with warmth and, and Shaggy himself is a character who's, who's full of strength and hope, I think. In the book itself, actually, hope outside of Shaggy is, is, cast, as quite a, is cast as quite a dangerous thing. In fact, mm -hmm. one of the scenes I, I found most memorable was when Agnes goes out for dinner with a new boyfriend who's well-meaning, actually, but she falls off the wagon um and and her kids are obviously devastated and you know it's a sort of hope that kills them and actually there's also a moment when when Shuggy's brother Leek the line is um Leek frowned at Shuggy like he was angry at his hope disappointed that Shuggy was stupid enough to still believe I'm very interested in this interplay of of hope and and um taking stock of reality and and how your own thick or thin skin might have developed in that sort of way because I mean talking about rejection now in a way it seems like you have a very thick skin but I wonder how that developed with the with the upbringing that you had you know whether the knockbacks you had as a child gave you a thick skin or 
and if so, how how did hope remain? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think that's exactly it. I think when you grow up as a child of addiction or trauma, or you really suffer the loss of a parent as a child, both parents, in fact, um, then you have to develop uh, some resiliency and some. Uh, dependency on yourself because you just have to keep going otherwise you know what happens how do you fall backwards where do you you vanish all the way to and one of the things that I wouldn't wish for anybody but turned out to be good for me is when my mother died at six, when I was 16 it essentially made me an orphan but I still had to finish high school uh, I still you know I was the first person in my family to finish high school I still had to I was looking around Glasgow and seeing my brother and my uncles not be able to find work even though they'd sort of built a life building these trade-based skills and so I had to just keep going I had to move on forward and I've always placed a lot of faith in work. I try not to believe in the goal or the dream or where you're trying to get to because I really believe in the power of accrual. And if you take a step and take lots and lots of small steps, then you will get whatever it is you are trying to go to. And I think sometimes we intimidate ourselves by thinking of the end result. And life is so immediate at the moment when we look at social media or we look at other things, we see people with this enormous amount of success. And we sometimes forget to you know, talk about what it took to get there. And so for me, I always just tried to put one step in front, one foot in front of the other and, and continue in that way. But that was it. That was the entire secret of my success, I think, was just to keep going and to persevere. That's so true about social media. It doesn't allow for the length of time it sometimes takes to build yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also sometimes the success isn't as shiny as it looks on social media. And yet we believe it is. And, and so it's just all a warped reality. Yes. I wonder, actually, if you hadn't taken that time, both to write Shaggy Bane, but also in the interim to go and do Texas. I mean, I think a teacher at one point told you that uh, studying English wouldn't wouldn't be right for someone of your of your background. Is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it was a much more positive thing than perhaps that soundbite captures. Um, at 16, you know, my education's a mess. Uh, I'm just trying to finish high school. And I wasn't an especially gifted or bright young man. I can't say I was, but I was determined in a way. And I was desperate in another way. And, you know, my English teacher just said to me, I didn't really read a book till I was 17 because I didn't have enough peace at home or inside myself to, to focus or concentrate. And my teacher just said to me, look, this isn't, this isn't for you. This is such a competitive, like what he was hinting at was there are middle-class kids who have spent their entire life growing up around books that will have sort of come out of high school uh, with a really sort of a lot of literature behind them and be going on to Cambridge and Oxford. And that just wasn't available to me. And so they turned me instead towards textiles, which was an incredibly encouraging thing because it's an art-based scale, but uh, very employable within Scotland at the time. And I needed to make a living and I needed to get on. It's sad in a way that you were turned away from English when you're expressing an interest in it. But also, I wonder if had you not been given the space, both in terms of time and geography, actually, to reflect mm. on your childhood, whether whether we would even have Shaggy Bane, um, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a product of rumination consideration, isn't it? Yeah, and there's no deadline on books or when they join the world. And so whatever the path is to creating that work is just the path that it's going to be. You can't compare it to another route. I would actually, part of, 
I think what I enjoyed about writing Shuggy Bane is there was no expectations. There was no expectations of me as a writer or to produce anything because no one understood that that was what I was trying to do. And that was an incredibly wonderful space to be in, I think, for any creative person. Uh, you know, at post winning the book or post people reading Shuggy, I feel a whole different level of expectations now. And, and I'm always trying to return to that place where nobody knew me and I could just write whatever I wanted. Yes. I mean, I was going to ask you about that. How, how has it been? I think you had finished your second book by the time Shuggy was published. Is that right? So you've been writing your third in this last year? Yeah, that's right. I'm actually currently writing my third novel uh, and putting edits to my second book, which will be published next April. I would say to any debut novelist to actually try and begin your next project before your book publishes, uh, because there comes so many emotions that will sort of mute and silence you for a while after publication, no matter what happens to your book. And so to have a place of work that you're sure about what you're doing is a really safe place to be and, and a good place if you've already managed to start that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I'm glad I had begun my second book because I hadn't expected, no one expected Shuggy to touch people in the way it has or to win the booker. And, you know, I feel the, the expectations of that now. And, and so what I'm really grateful for is that my second novel was written also without those expectations against it. Uh, it's just the book that I wanted to write. Mm. It obviously took you a lot less time than Shuggy. How and why was that, do you think? Well, actually, it dovetails a little bit. The writing of it dovetails with, with the editing of Shuggy. And so I began my second novel in 2016, I believe. And, you know, when I would put Shuggy to the side because I wasn't sure it would be published, then I would work on this next book. And maybe I would, when I'd done a draft of that, I'd go back and look at Shuggy. And so I had two projects sort of on the go at the time. And and that's when I really had to release Shuggy into the world because he was stopping me from focusing. So uh, after Shuggy published in 20, or when he began the publishing journey is when I could really turn my attention to my second book fully. Mm. Why did you start the second novel without having submitted Shuggy at that point? Did you just know in your heart that Shuggy wasn't really ready to go to an agent yet, but didn't know what to do with it either? No, because I started the second book because writing's the important thing. Publishing wasn't necessarily the important thing for me or the goal. What was the motivation was just to write. I just had to had to write. Mm. Um, and so I couldn't not not write the second book or start the third book. And so that's one of the weird things about me, I think, because I've only just begun publishing, but actually I've been writing for quite a long time and, and sort of working on that. And I think at the end of the day, as we spoke about with control and you can't really control how something will go, the important thing always is just the writing. I wanted to ask you something about the covers because mm. the British cover and the American cover are quite different. Mm. So the British cover has just a little boy on a housing mm. estate all by himself looking um, melancholy. And the American cover, I think, if this is right, has a mother and son sort of cuddling in bed. And I thought that was very interesting because Shuggy is, um, I suppose the, the British cover feels quite, feels lonelier, feels not more pessimistic, but um, less focused on, on that sort of hopefulness. And I wondered as a, 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 a Scottish American, whether you had a view on, on that and how British, an American reader's experience your book. 
Yeah, there actually was a pretty interesting backstory to that because at first the American publishers had some social housing photos and pictures of the Glasgow skyline. And I just felt that that wasn't how I wanted to introduce the book to American readers. For me, it was a universal story about a mother and son loving each other and trying to get on and, and you know, and have a better tomorrow than they had today. And so we had many conversations about that because actually the social housing photos were much clearer and captured an awful lot about the book. And I had to almost sort of fight my corner on that. And I thought, no, you know, this is a, a mother's story and I wanted to really have a mother on the front cover. And so I actually had to go away and do my own research. And I found that photo and I brought it to my publishers. And I did, yeah, I did. And actually he's a, um, a phenomenal photographer who takes a lot of these very journalistic photos of war-torn regions. But this was just a photograph of his, uh, his name is Philip Marlowe. And this is just a photograph of his mother, uh, of his wife and his own son on a Sunday morning. So he just took pictures of them in bed and, um, and it was just so wonderful and intimate. And I love how the little boy is gripping his mother's head, how their bodies make a love heart and how he's just staring so intently into her eyes. Yes. Uh, I sometimes wonder how they feel about being on the cover of this book about addiction. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry if, they, if that surprised them. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you do have a chance to leave a review or rating, I'd really appreciate it. You can do that in your podcast app and it really helps people find the podcast. Plus it just makes me feel good, to be honest. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Francesca Steele with an E at the end. So do pop along and say hello. Um, hope to see you there. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>